You know, I've been thinking about something in terms of people going to the process and how we view people in the world. Maybe it's social media, or maybe it's just our general predisposition to assuming that we're worse off than other people, or that person looks like they have all their shit together. I guess I'm just aware of that dynamic. Frank Oliveri is our guest today. Cheesesteaks are his thing, and cooking is his thing. And I guess if you visited his world-famous store in Philadelphia, where one of his great older relatives invented the cheesesteak, you might assume this guy, he needs the process. Well, it turns out we all need the process. We all have parents. We all are human. And so I'm excited for you to listen to this episode from one human being to another, Frank Oliveri. Please enjoy. And we're so glad you're here as a part of this Hoffman experience. Thanks for showing up and listening. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning. And on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Frankie Oliveri, how you doing? I'm very well, Drew. How are you? Great to be talking to you this morning. It's great to be having the opportunity to talk to you. <laughs> so would you tell us your story a little bit, how you came to be you? I am just Frank Oliveri, Frankie Oliveri. I'm the what, third generation Italian-American living in Philadelphia. I guess you could say that I'm the third generation owner of probably one of the most famous restaurants in the world, Pat's King of Steaks. My family, my great uncle Pat is responsible for inventing both the Philadelphia steak sandwich and the Philadelphia cheesesteak sandwich in 1930. Yeah, that's who I am. <laughs> is it true that cheesesteak didn't have cheese in it originally? Well, that a steak sandwich didn't have cheese. It was just meat, bread, and onions. So the story goes... If anybody's familiar with the first Rocky movie, the street where Sylvester Stallone ran down the street and they threw him the orange is the world-famous Italian market, continuously running for 127 years, open-aired market. So my Uncle Pat had a hot dog stand, and he sold hot dogs every day. And everybody would shop fresh because no one really had refrigeration in 1930 in their houses. And every day they ate hot dogs, he and my grandfather, Harry, and one day he had a little extra money in his pocket and sent my grandfather to the butcher down the street and, get, and they picked up some you know, trimmings of meat and cooked it up on his hot dog grill. Condiments at the time were onions. He had a loaf of Italian bread because we're Italian. He put, a, you know, put the sandwich together and a cab driver who ate hot dogs every day saw the sandwich and said, wow, it's really great. Make me one. So Uncle Pat said, well, I only have enough for my brother and I, but I'll give you half of my sandwich since you eat hot dogs every day. And the cab driver took a bite of the sandwich and said, you know what, forget about hot dogs. This is the sandwich you should start making. And that was the invention of the Philly steak sandwich. That was 1930. 1930, yeah. What was it like for you growing up in Philly, the, the son of Italian-Americans in that world, in that community? 
it was pretty awesome. Philadelphia in general is very small. It's kind of an incestuous town. Everybody knows everybody. And being that I am the son, the grandson, and the great nephew of the owner of Pat Steaks, kind of was like, you know, it was like the, the, the prince in waiting of the city. City was mine. Friend, had friends and it was just, it was fabulous. I could do no wrong <laughs> in certain respects. And then what? I went to parochial school from kindergarten to sixth grade, which was in my neighborhood. And then my parents decided to send me to private Quaker school, Friends Select, um, a school that was established in 1689 in Philadelphia. When I, you know, went from my local school where I, you know, only knew people in my own neighborhood, I went to a school where I was open to like people from all different races, colors, and creeds, and it really opened my eyes. And I had probably the most amazing experience being there. I always say my parents gave me a lot of things, including some bad patterns. <laughs> we'll talk about that later, I guess. But my, uh, one of the best things my parents gave me was my Quaker Friend Select education. I'm trying to continue the narrative of what led you to your process. So you grow up being a cook and owner in the business. You get married, you have a family, life moves on. And then what happens? Yeah, life moves on. So when I graduated from high school in 1982, um, I was going to Le Cordon Bleu in France. And then I decided to take um, some time off because we had a manager who was leaving the store. And then I'm staying at the store. You know, when I was 24 years old, I was you know still with my, I guess, high school sweetheart who lived in the Atlantic City area. You know, I was not sure I wanted to get married, but, you know, through some forces of nature and a family, maybe. I was kind of persuaded to go through with that. And I never really was, I was never really comfortable with that whole idea. So I went through a 28 year marriage. So we got to the point uh, where I decided not to be part of that anymore. So I, I removed myself from the marriage and um, I moved back to Philadelphia, leaving my, my two children behind, unfortunately. Keep pressing play on your story. You're now divorced and. What happens? So I moved back to Philadelphia and I'm kind of like a fish out of water. And um, 28 days later, after I moved to Philadelphia, I meet Nancy, my present wife. You know, we have an awesome relationship right off the start. We want to better our love. We want to better our, ourselves for not only ourselves, but for people around us. So uh, Nancy, she comes to me and she says, um, I'm interested in doing this process. It's called the Hoffman process. And she said, it'll make, I'm like, okay, fine. Sign me up too. She said, well, do you want to know about it? I'm like, listen, if it betters our relationship, if it betters us individually and it helps us as a couple, I said, I'll do anything to strengthen our relationship and be a better person. We signed up for it. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so we postponed it a couple of times. We were both signed up for it. And then um, November 8th last year, I had open heart surgery. So that kind of postponed me until September of 2022. So I just completed the process. I guess before I ask you what you got, take us to your process. Take us inside your week. What's happening? We kind of met some other friends who have done the process and I'm sort of surrounded by it and surrounded by them. And, you know, there's a kind of a veil of secrecy that, you know, I could tell me things, but they can't tell me things. And I'm like, so I'm kind of joking around about it. I'm like, it's a cold. Am I going to be drinking Kool-Aid when I get out there? I just see the reaction and the way Nancy would interact with her friends who did the process. And it made me very curious. And when, I, when she came home from the process initially, 
finding her in the other room and we spend the majority of our day together. She'd be in the other room talking on the telephone and signing off saying, no, I love you. I love you. I'll talk to you later. I'm like, well, yeah. I'm like, who, who are these people you love now? Kind of felt like jealous, like I was a little bit of an outsider. So I was anticipating going to the process more to find out what it was all about and to share in that feeling that she had. I wanted to be a part of it. And so you, you sign up, you go. I sign up, I go. And uh, I did the process in California and I got to the site. I got there early. Yeah, I was a little nervous now turning in my phone because you know i have a business that runs 24 hours i have parents my dad has alzheimer's you never know what goes on with that although i informed everybody i was going to be away there's still that separation from the outside life at that point do they need me could the place run without me are there questions that only i can answer but uh i think once i spent the night there uh, i was probably the first one to turn my phone in i was i was ready and i wanted to become completely immersed and be completely vulnerable. And I wanted to just get back to my authentic self. I wanted to be that child again. What part of your process do you remember even now, Frankie? There are so many parts in the process. We had a fabulous, fabulous group of people in our process, some of which came in, they didn't speak to other people when they were there. And by like the third or fourth day, everybody was like a huge family. I mean, interacting, like they've known each other for many, many, many years. And just to see some people who went from being so quiet to social again was, was amazing to see that transformation. For me, however, what part stands out most for me was there's one exercise where we go in and it's, it's a big part of the process. And um, well, actually, there's a couple pieces, pieces. So one of which went in, I went in with the understanding that one of my parents was my issue. And by, by the second or third day, I had a revelation. It was like, no, it's, it's, it isn't my mother. It's my father. My father was my problem. And I think my facilitators, Meredith and Marissa, were like, how did you come to that? And I explained to them how my thought process and how I got to that part. And they were like, wow, that's, that's true. That's your issue. Although my mother, she didn't get a pass there. You know, there was just things that she bestowed upon me. Those patterns that I still deal with. But that, for that, me, that was a big moment. Another moment where, uh, you know, every day they're on that particular property out in California, it's a magnificent, there are deer, there are sheep, rabbits, and it's just beautiful out there. So every day I would see the deer outside and I was walking to go do my task. And there was this doe standing by the side of the road. And I said, hey, buddy, what's going on? Doe looked at me and then ran five feet and looked back at me like, hey, follow me. So I, I followed her for like 15 minutes climbing one of the hills up there. And and she led me to this amazing section where she just looked at me and just ran away. I just like, okay, why am I up here? It's kind of breaking up right now, thinking about it. It was very symbolic of the task at hand. I just found it amazing. And it was like, okay, this is, this is why I'm here. And then I just spent the rest of our, my time up there, just like to, taking in the sun, meditating, and just getting back to who I was. When you said task, you're referencing an assignment the teachers give the students, and you were, were engaged in that assignment, and it involves making peace with your parents. Is that right? Yes. Making peace with my parents, making peace with, making peace with myself in both, both ways, my, my good self and my bad self. Yeah. What was that like for you to, to do that assignment? It was difficult, but I figured without giving too much away, I, I, I made my parents make their own decision 
how they wanted to live the rest of their life symbolically. You know, it's almost like, you know, Christmas past, Christmas future kind of thing. And looking at the road that I could have taken, I wasn't really happy. And that was like a, a life not filled with love, self-respect, boundaries, all the things that, you, that I have that, I, that you want to foster in life so you can actually be yourself, be your authentic self. And I think that's one of the things that we really get away from. I saw myself in the light that I didn't want to be anymore. I didn't want to be that person. And I wanted to live my life as a better person. And then I saw my other self, my, my future self as a good person. And, and, I, and I, that's the life I want to embrace. I want to, I want to be that person. You were about to speak about what the patterns you had learned from your past. What I saw in my bad self, I guess, was generational dysfunction that I didn't want to perpetuate anymore. I wanted to come back, come back to life as I know it and be that person who doesn't perpetuate the generational dysfunction. You know, and I, I know I can't change everyone around me. I'm only responsible for myself, but my friends, my family, my employees, and people around me that I, that I love that are still in my circle look up to me for, for guidance because I'm kind of fun to be around. It doesn't really sound like I'm fun right now, but I'm kind of fun to be around. And, and I'm honest, I'm authentic. If I figured if I, if I lead by example, maybe I could chip away at that generational dysfunction and have other people want to follow my lead and maybe change as well. This way we can stop perpetuating those patterns that our parents and grandparents and, and surrogates have given to us. What happened as the week went on? What did you notice as you came to the end of your week? Well, I was kind of getting like a little sad because I didn't want it to end. I had that, you know, that quote unquote Hoffman high. It was just great. I just felt light. I even forgot that I had a cell phone and I forgot that I had a computer. I didn't forget, however, that I was coming home to something. So I was apprehensive about that. I took some time there to, well, Nancy actually came out and met me and we spent some time out in California with she and I and, and some other Hoffman grads which was great. But I, I, I implore people when they do the process to take some time. For me, it worked out well because my, my wife and I are, are great. We speak the same language. Now we have that same, we have the same language. So it's, it was easier for me. But you do need to take that time to integrate back in because you have to find your center because what you left is still the same when you get back. You're so high, you're so clean in your mind that it's easy to get polluted again. So for me, I took a couple extra days when I returned back to Philadelphia, back to the East Coast. I got to work, and of course, there were several triggers that happened that day. You know, going to Quaker school, I learned how to meditate, and it was something that I, I bring to myself every day now, back to myself. And I, I figured, then, let me count to 10, let me do some recycling, let me do some pre-cycling. Before, you know, on my way to work that morning, I just did some pre-cycling. And, and so my first experience at work was one of my employees who came in. Normally, I would be like very sharp and sarcastic with, with this person. She came into my office and, and I, felt, I felt empathy and I felt compassion. Where like normally I would be not that person, but you know, kind of like in, and not in a mean fashion, but not in, in a way where I would recognize her. So I did. And then when she left my office and she, I could see the look that she felt better about herself when she left the office. And I felt, much better about myself. And I'm like, Hey, you know what? It, it does work. <laughs> it, self-compassion and loving yourself makes you a better person. So you can love other people and be compassionate. 
So you signed up for the Q2 fairly quickly. What what did the Q2, this second uh, weekend, do for you in terms of the work, and how did it support you? The Q2 was, uh, I signed up, Nancy said that she was doing the Q2, I think before I even did the process. So she could have easily driven herself from Philadelphia to Connecticut, no big deal. And I said, you know what, I'll, I'll drive you up. So I figured to myself, listen, and I'm still at the, I still have the Hoffman High going on. And at the last moment, I said, you know, if I'm driving you there for three hours and driving back and then driving back to pick you up, and if I'm doing 12 hours of driving, I'm, I may as well just stay and go through and continue. So I did and um, was fortunate enough that I got in. I don't know if you made more room for me or not, but I got in and, you know, the benefits from that were enormous. You know, Nancy and I became closer. Um, you were you were a facilitator. You saw that Nancy and I only sat together, I think, a few times when we had dinner, lunch, or breakfast. During the classes, we, we separated ourselves. So this way, I wouldn't impede on her process and her ability to interact with other people. And she with me the same. It was like we were together as a unit, but we were separate. And we were actually just spreading the love, so to speak. What we learned in our individual processes and brought it to the Q2 for the continuation. For me, it was beneficial because I kind of honed my pre-cycling and recycling skills. I got to meet 24 more amazing people who were interested in doing the same, like-minded people. Frank, in your sharing about your experiences, you've referenced that a bunch, the, the community, the people watching them transform and how powerful that is for you. What is it about other people's journey and connecting together that feels so important for you? I like to be around people that are interested in better themselves, whether it's through education or through community service, but more importantly, for a person to better themselves, not fixing themselves, that's the wrong word to use, understanding how people are and making themselves better is important to me because it takes away that hidden agenda that most people have. Being around people that are interested in bettering themselves, it's easier to have conversation with like-minded people. And it's kind of confusing, but if you're around toxic people all the time, it's, it's infectious. You become toxic in your thoughts. But if you're around people who are interested in bettering themselves and expressing self-love and compassion towards themselves and others, it's contagious. You want to do that. At night, you put your head on your pillow at night. And you wake up in the morning and you just feel great. You're not tossing and turning, thinking about, did I do it right? Did I do it wrong? Go to bed with a clear head. <laughs> and so how do you see yourself now? And how do you see your past differently as a result of the, the process? How, I guess it's a kind of perspective question. How has the process help you put the past into a new perspective? Not to be all geeky, but like, um, you know, shellfish, like crabs and lobsters, they shed their shells. That hard exterior becomes, you know, it's, sometimes it's, it's too hard. So I look at myself now, growing up as a child, having a soft exterior, and through the years of just being in, in a family business and in my family and people around me, my exterior became hard and brittle. Going through the process for me has helped me like molt through my shell, get rid of that hard exterior, and I become that vulnerable person again. Where you know I, I can look at myself and laugh, and I cannot be embarrassed if I'm going to dance or sing in front of somebody. 
and I'm that vulnerable person again, I'm going to try to keep that soft exterior as, as much as I can because I really like myself. I'd rather be a soft person than a hard person. It's like, you know, the vinegar and honey thing. I'd rather be honey all day long than be vinegar. And as you as you think about your mom and your dad and their Italian Philadelphia heritage, how have you seen them differently? Well, I see my parents differently in that in one of the processes you you, you picture your parents as, as children. You know, I pictured my mother as a child and and my father as a child. And and I picture my grandparents because I was fortunate enough to have all four of my grandparents alive for into my teens. You know, I recognized that my parents didn't have a chance because that's the way they were treated. Those patterns that they bestowed upon me were the same patterns that their parents gave to them. And I could see myself as a child going to my grandmother's house on a Saturday where my mother would have to clean my grandmother's house. And my grandmother just acting like she was helpless and she couldn't do it. And on the other hand, I see my father's father as being that like hard exterior kind of guy where he was more concerned about what other people thought about him rather than the people around him and his family. He was more concerned about what the neighborhood people thought about him than the people that inside of his family. He took care of the neighborhood people more than he took care of his own family. I think that's a pattern, unfortunately, that my father kind of picked up. When I, when I came home and explained to my mother like, what the process is, was about, and um, my dad has Alzheimer's. Actually, today's his birthday. He's 84. So I, I, I couldn't really explain to him how I felt and explain to him what I went through. But I could explain to my mother in a gentle way that both her and my father didn't have a chance because of the way they were raised. And it's not their fault. What do you feel as you say that? Well, I, f- I feel sad. I look at the mistakes that I made along the way. You know, I don't have a relationship with my children. And, and I look at it like these are, these are patterns that I got from my parents. And it's not my fault. So going forward, how do I fix that? My children don't want to have any relationship with me, unfortunately. And uh, I don't know if it's because of the way they feel because I, I left their mother and the marriage. I, I don't know. I, there's, no, there's no correspondence whatsoever. So I don't know. Maybe I can gift all three of them the process. and. They can learn to forgive themselves and perhaps some down sometime down the line forgive me. Frankie, there's a tender spot here for a, a broken relationship with your children. Did at any point in the process you envision how you might move forward to repair that and what that might look like, that repair with them? Yeah. You know, it's something that Nancy's been encouraging me to do throughout our relationship is, you know, write a letter sit down and write a letter and and take responsibility for my actions and explain to them, you know, this is what happened. And I take full responsibility for what I did and what I didn't do. Basically just put my best foot forward and extend that olive branch. And if something comes of it, okay. And and if something doesn't, well then at least I know that I tried and I satisfied that part of it. Not necessarily that I'm looking for closure because I just hope there's it's not a black and white thing. I still, I'm still looking at the gray area. And, you know, before I went into the process, I was very black and white and I'm not that anymore. So hopefully that gray area can turn into something that will be a, um, some kind of dialogue, you know, hopefully healthy. What's it like to talk about that and your family history and your process? What do you notice as you reflect on all these things in your life? Well, I can tell you that if I didn't do the process, that there would be no way that I would be revealing these intimacies of my of my life and my feelings. You wouldn't be so vulnerable? No, I wouldn't be vulnerable. I mean, I would be have that hard exterior. That's the, the facade I'd have to put on. 
in order to survive. It's a survival instinct. You can't be vulnerable in an area where, you know, people will look at you like, you know, your kindness is actually weakness. Sometimes that's the way it's viewed. Frankie, I'm grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you on many, many different levels. What's next for you? What's next for the the business? You did say you're open 24 hours, seven days a week. You only close two days a year? At Christmas and Thanksgiving. It's a 92-year business. It's been here for, you know, for a long time. It's, you know, when people think about Philadelphia, they think about cheesesteaks, the Rocky statue, and, and if they have enough time, they go see the Liberty Bell. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I mean, hopefully, it'll, it'll, it'll continue on long after you know, Nancy and I aren't here anymore. I'm just grateful that my, that my family has it's my legacy. You know, my, my, my great uncle Pat invented that sandwich, and it's a legacy that, that my family can give back to the world. You can really can't go to any of the four corners of the planet and not see a Philadelphia cheesesteak somewhere. Frankie Cheesesteak. Was that it? Was that ever your nickname? No, it's uh well since my name is Frank Oliveri, I used to be called Frankie Onions or Fried Onions. As a child, Frankie Boy was my name. And were you called that in the process? Yeah, I was Frankie Boy. Frankie Boy, thank you. I'm grateful. Thank you, Drew. I'm grateful as well. Drew, I see you and I love you. <laughs> I don't see you right now because I'm looking at my computer screen, but I see you and I love you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.